going through how we got here and some of the details of that, and I, I hope that it would give us encouragement to know that God has been there with us. Uh, he has guided and led us and brought us to this point, and uh, obviously has a purpose in it. And we've been reviewing a bit of that purpose in understanding what the end-time work really is. There was a great deal of misunderstanding on that in worldwide. Just, I won't say misunderstanding so much as lack of understanding. In that Herbert Armstrong thought his commission was to preach the gospel to the world and then the end would come and we would all flee to a place of safety. And it just didn't work out that way. Uh, he did what he did, and that ended, and we didn't go to a place of safety, and we're still here. And people have been confused and wondering, and I think it was simply a matter of him not fully grasping and understanding what his commission was. Now, I think he fulfilled what God intended him to. I'm not criticizing the man. I do think that he went to many nations, as per Matthew 28, and made disciples for God uh, out of all those nations, and did a worldwide work, which was a form of the temple of God. And it probably was, nose to tail with the seven church eras of Revelation 2 and 3, what we have termed the Philadelphia era. There were not glaring errors there. <clears throat> I mean, there were sure things that we didn't understand yet, but not glaring errors. And essentially, uh, the way of God was being taught, preached, and followed. Now, it lapsed into a totally different approach over time, and I think became lackadaisical and Laodicean. And we've covered that many times. So that was the former temple, and it has now been destroyed. God wants another temple built, and I do believe that he has brought us out here to be a preparation, a forerunner for that, to prepare a place that it might be established. I see God's hand in that. I see how he worked it out. I see that the things that came in dreams worked out. They happened that way, and sometimes even things that I had forgotten happened, and then later on, a year or two later, I looked around and says, wow, <laughs> that happened. And I wasn't trying to work things out to make it happen. I literally had forgotten about it, and then woke up to the fact that it had occurred the way that the dream had said. And there are still some things to happen that were in some of those that I do not believe have yet happened. <clears throat> but in due time, I believe they will if we continue the course and do what we need to be doing. I believe others will come. Now, we went into Revelation 1 and 5. We went into Zechariah, Haggai and Zechariah. A matter of brief review here. To see that a, an end-time temple has to be built and that it has to be far greater in its spiritual condition and understanding than that which came before. And I made the point that each and every one of us 
needs to be much more spiritually prepared and show the growth beyond what we were when we were in Worldwide Church of God. That that was not sufficient, that God expects more of us, wants more out of us, and that He is going to call a remnant, a 10%, essentially, of those who were in Worldwide, and cause them to build His temple. And that those people will represent the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. We saw in in, uh, Isaiah 41 that seven churches will be in the wilderness, seven women will take hold of one man in Isaiah 4, and so on. And then we went to Zechariah 4 and saw the seven candlesticks and tied them together with the two witnesses of Revelation 11. So, what God is doing in the end time is bringing two primary leaders together with a group of people who will be His witnesses, that He is God in the end time, and that will be a witness that is held forth for the whole world. And I think we've come to see that our narrow view and worldwide that Uh, suddenly two men would appear on the scene or whatever and begin preaching for 1260 days was not the whole story. That before that, a preparation had to be done. And that God expects you and me and those who come later to be Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 shows long list of people who were faithful to God, who walked in faith, who not knowing all the answers and couldn't see everything they were doing, went ahead and did it anyway. Now I've tried to show you in this series that the faith you showed in the explanation of the scriptures you were hearing and the actions you took as a result of that in coming and building a village, a place, was not done in vain. Though you didn't know all the answers when you packed up and came out here, did you? And we still don't have all of them as yet in terms of seeing the finished product. But let us remember that Hebrews 11 is a story of a lot of people who saw through a glass darkly. It is a story of a lot of people who went ahead and went forward, not always knowing where they were going, and in fact rarely knowing where they were going or exactly what they were doing. I think God, through the Scriptures, has given us a pretty good idea of where we're headed and what He wants us to do. If you commission somebody to do something... You need to give them an idea of what to do, what it is that they are to accomplish. Now, in a way, he did that with Abraham and tell him to go find a city, a place that God would have designated, which turned out to be Jerusalem. So he didn't just tell him, go wandering off and somewhere along the line I'll tell you a commission. 
He did give him some understanding of what it was he was looking for. He just didn't tell him how to get there. So Abraham had to go and look for a place. David even mentions that. I forget exactly which psalm it is, but it, he talks about, I'll not rest until I find a place for my God, that he might dwell there. He's speaking of Zion, ultimately, in that particular psalm. So God didn't always give all the directions and all the turns like your GPS might do to get you to a location. He, he gave a general direction, gave a general commission, sometimes a fairly specific one, and then he said, go find out how to do it. Figure it out. Come to me, ask for help, but you have a responsibility and a job to do. Now, I do believe very strongly that God will bring elements of all seven of the churches out into the wilderness, that he will use them to build a latter temple spiritually, and I'm beginning to think more and more that we will also need to be involved in a physical temple. The walls of Jerusalem, on a spiritual level, the church certainly have to be built and the breach is filled to keep the world from pouring in and us from pouring out into the world. And I'm beginning to think that the walls physically of the true Jerusalem have to be rebuilt as well. God says he will give protection for those operations. How? Exactly when? How do we go about it? I know one who may be involved in some of this on some level is fearful and afraid that the government will come in and, and try to destroy everything that we do and would do so and kill us if we're involved. Now, I don't know exactly how and when and in what manner God will protect what He has commissioned His people to do, but He has said He will. So it is not for us to fear. It is not for us to hold back and shrink back, as Hebrews says. But it's time to move forward and do whatever we can and not murmur and not complain. There are so many, many lessons we didn't get to about the days of unleavened bread and moving forward out of Egypt or out of Babylon, if you will, both and the attitudes that need to be main, maintained in order to do so. To always have a positive, uplifting viewpoint of what needs to be done and how we need to go about it. Not to murmur, not to complain, not to question, not to doubt, but to read these scriptures and believe them. And that was much of why I chose to go through this subject during these days, is that we might be able to see some ways in which God already has led and guided and directed us and brought us to the point we already are, so that it might give us strength, impetus, power, courage to move forward in the next phase in whatever way that it works out and however God wants it done. 
I don't think he will always spell out every detail for us. He wants us to learn wisdom. He wants us to learn patience, obedience. He wants us to grow above all things in the Spirit because it is the spiritual things that are the key. This world is not missing for nice buildings. What it's missing is contact and understanding of God and His way of life. And that's why we have wars and fighting and all kinds of problems in the world. It's the spiritual dimension that is the most important. These physical things need to be done, perhaps as an example to the world, and to fulfill some prophecies, but they are not the key thing. The spiritual temple is the key. We had a lovely building, quite a few lovely buildings in Pasadena, and Brickett Wood and Big Sandy for that matter. But it was our spiritual building that was the problem, not those physical buildings. They were magnificent in some cases, not just nice. That auditorium for the great God in Pasadena was one of the finest buildings on earth. I kid you not. And the cost was one of the finest, too, of building it for square foot. Now let's go to Revelation 2. He talks about the seven candlesticks being the seven churches. And he's talking about the end time. He told John about things that will soon happen, things that will be, and things that are in the end time. So, the first real message beyond the fact that God is God and Christ is Christ, and that there are people on the face of the earth at the end time who are the people of God. Now, we've long said that there's only one true church. That's true. But now we understand that there can be divisions in that church as well, and that there can be different personalities and different levels of spirituality and growth, and differences in personality, and so on. So this message here in the book of Revelation is not written just to the people back in Paul, James, and Peter's day, or to those people who come, came to know God during the Middle Ages and the 18 and 1900s in this country. But it's written to a people at the end of the age. Let's read what he says here beginning in chapter 2. To the angel, and we've already seen that each of the churches has an angel, the spirits of God, who have eyes that look over those churches. To Ephesus, the first one that was on that mail route, and of course, Ephesus was the one that we have attributed through the ages to being the first church, once the church began, that the first era was Ephesus, followed later by Pergamos sometime after 100 A.D., and on down through time until today. And we look at Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea here at the end as those three that 
perhaps are visible right at the end in that nose-to-tail fulfillment. But what about right now and what there is and what there will be that we've already discussed in this series, Seven in the Wilderness? To Ephesus write, These things, says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Christ himself. These are his words. To Ephesus, I know your works. Ephesus had done some good work. They had done a great work in many respects in the early New Testament church. The church started out on Pentecost in Acts 2 with a bang. But it created quite a stir in the Jewish and the Roman world. That's interesting, isn't it? Will there be a church in the end time that causes quite a stir in the world? I know your works and your labor. They worked hard. They had a vision of what God wanted done in their day. And... This is talking now not just to them, but it's talking to us. Since the book of Revelation was written essentially after the Ephesian era was done. Do we understand that? The Ephesian era began in about A.D. 30. Some say 31. I think 30 may be the better date. But by the late 90s A.D., About 70 years later, it had run its course. The church was about to disappear. All the apostles save John had died when this was written. There had been a great falling away in the church. Its mission was essentially accomplished. Now why would Christ have John write a very powerful message to a church which had by that time essentially disappeared off the face of the earth. Was that message then intended for someone else later? And if so, who? Speaking of some people at the end here, John says, I know your works and your labor and your patience. Here at the end, things things have stretched out, and even in the little work we've been given to do, it seems to have taken longer than I initially thought that it would. Maybe that's why God wanted a message to get out early, because He knew it would take time to develop. He knew that those who would be doing the work needed time to be tried and tested, to see if they were faithful and true and strong and would obey. And if He's calling us to be the example in the end, His end-time group, and I hope we're part of it, if He's calling us to be an example and a light to the whole world, the final climactic example for the whole world to see, to prove to the world that God is God, 
Do you not think he would want to check those people out for a while? Hasn't he always done that? Hasn't he always given space for growth and opportunity, trial and test? Look at Joseph and the things that happened to him. Look at Abraham and the trial and the tests that occurred over him even having a son. And then being asked to kill that son. And we could go on and on. How patient did Noah have to be to spend that long building one boat? Hebrews 11, I said, without going through the whole book here and now this afternoon... Recall those examples of people who through blood, sweat, and tears clung to Christ and to God the Father and would not turn loose like Jacob. They did not have easy lives. Some were tortured, maimed, killed, lived in caves, wondered where their next meal was coming from. Now we've been tested I would say, this to this point, very mildly in comparison to what other people in the past have had to do. And don't minimize, as you sit right here today, people of God, do not minimize the job God has given Herbert Armstrong and that ministry worked long, hard hours to develop the work that occurred. And all the people of God in the past have worked long, hard hours to accomplish God's purposes. Now, we have been called to be a part of the climactic end-of-the-age work, which will have to be the most magnificent, the most powerful, the most far-reaching work that has ever occurred. And it will have to go far beyond what Herbert Armstrong did in world and the, the knowledge of the world about it and against it. The whole world could not have hated Worldwide Church of God because the whole world never even knew about it. Now, what you and I are part of is going to be known of everyone. Let's broaden our horizons. It's so easy to get bogged down in little old me and my little old problems here and the difficulties I'm having and why doesn't so-and-so be nice to me? Or whatever we get all in a wad about. We need to see a bigger picture of what God is doing, and we need to keep it in the forefront of our minds. Because He expects more of us than perhaps we expect of ourselves. Now, I will say this to temper that a bit. I say so far it's been pretty mild, and it has compared to being sawed from stem to stern like Isaiah or putting a, bo a 
vat of boiling oil, as was John perhaps, and crucified upside down, our troubles are pretty small by comparison, are they not? And yet on the other hand, what does he tell us in Matthew 24? Not to let your love wane and don't let iniquity abound because the love of many will wax cold and blessed is he that endures to the end. Now in some ways, it would be easier to be killed outright and martyred like Stephen was after giving a very inspiring sermon and then had stones rained down on him and he died and he's in the kingdom of God. Now the prospect of us, one of us walking out here and having a crowd meet us and stone us with stones is not an appealing thing. And yet, in some ways, in some ways, looking back over the last over 55 years I've been involved with the truth of God, If you were to give me this choice today, would you go back through that 55 years, or would you rather just walk out here and get stoned? And I don't mean with something I'm smoking. I might take the stoning. Enduring to the end, under the conditions that the church has existed in these end times, and trying to be spiritual trying to walk in God's ways when the whole world around you is going exactly the opposite direction, it's not an easy task. It's not easy to be transformed from thinking like the rest of the world. Now you older people know that and how you've fought all these years to try to stay in God's good graces and try to obey His laws, and it's not been easy. And even you young people today who see the whole world out there going a direction that sometimes to you looks like it could be a lot of fun, and here you are trying to be a part of a religious thing, and the fun that those other kids seem to be having out there seems a lot more enchanting and exciting than sitting here in church and trying to be good all the time. That's not easy on any of us. Whether we're 90 or 9, it's hard. So I don't mean to minimize what we have been through. By comparison to some of those things, it seems easy, and yet on the other hand, just day to day trying to be Christian is a pretty tall order with what's going on around us. So the patience and endurance that we're having to show could be pretty impressive. And how you cannot bear them which are evil. And I hear us a lot talking about how bad things are and how evil things are in this world. And how our government right now is advocating 
that they abort babies in the eighth month of pregnancy and pull them out of the mother and stick them down the scissors right into their brain. That's evil. It's murder. And we talk about these things that are evil. And you've tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. I can think of a couple of Tkachas along that line. We tried and proved out, and they were liars. The truth wasn't in them. And perhaps others as well. And have borne, that is, carried, lifted, hauled, and have patience, it mentions again. And for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. We haven't just passed out and given up, have we? Some have. But those who are still around have not. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. The excitement, the energy that we felt when we first came in. Even first started maybe this job. Maybe we've sort of lapsed into frustration or boredom or who cares or I hope it all ends soon or we've lost perhaps some of the zeal that we might have had when we first were out here working in the rain and the snow and the cold day in and day out. Some of us can remember doing some of those things. Are we as excited about it now as we were then? Question mark. Remember, think about, therefore, from where you were fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Find the energy, the zeal, the excitement, the love that may have been there that might have slipped some. Or else, I will come to you quickly and will remove your candlestick out of his place, except you repent. Of course, this may not be talking about us. This may be talking about someone else somewhere else is Ephesus. So we needn't be concerned about this, right? But this you have, that you hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That word means destroyers of the truth or compromising some of the commentaries say it may have gone back to Nicholas, one of the deacons of Acts 6-5. I don't know that. But basically, it is a rebellious, disobedient attitude. At least he says Ephesus hated that. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I said, what if this isn't us? On the other hand, what if it is? What if it is? 
You know, that is a possibility. I think I even mentioned this some months ago, that of going through these, this group, to me, reflected what God was saying to Ephesus more than it did to the others, just in the general approach to life and what we've been able to accomplish and what maybe we've not been able to. What if it is us? Maybe we'd better examine it a bit. See, all we can learn. Because if he does put seven churches in the wilderness, where are we? We're in a wilderness, aren't we? Were we the third ones here? Fifth ones here? Sixth ones here? No, we're the first ones here. Now, is it possible that we could equate to the Ephesian era? There are some things mentioned in this little dissertation to Ephesus that I find intriguing. Now, he says some of the same things and some of the same language to the others, but let's for a moment look at this. It says, He that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, when we went through Zechariah 2, 3, and 4, did we not there two men who would be standing among the seven candlesticks? That the seven stars and the seven eyes would be before Joshua and Zerubbabel? Now, I've long maintained that we're a preparation work for something much bigger that God is going to do. So we're not going to get into questions about who will the two leaders be and all that. I don't think we need to delve into that or explore it necessarily. But the point is, We've been shown the right area to be in, have been brought here, and have been told to prepare a place for others to come. So that makes us part and parcel with it, doesn't it? If you're the crew that gets it ready for a place for people to gather later, then what are we going to do? As soon as they get here, pack up our bags and leave? I don't think so. Because if they're going to do the job that Zechariah 3... I think we're doing part of the job in Zechariah 1 and 2. But if those come, that remnant and those leaders are here, then wouldn't we want to stay and be a part of the work that God is going to do through them, that is going to be a stupendous work, and the only place on earth that God will protect people and use them as an example to the world? Now, if this is indeed what I think it is, when the story gets bigger and begins to be fulfilled in a much greater way, I want to be here and be part of it. I don't want to flush out or not endure to the end of it. So the, the, the language used here is very similar to the work we read about in Malachi, I mean in Haggai and Zechariah. 
Notice even toward the end of it, I will give you to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now what are some of the key scriptures that we've gone to in showing how God would bless his people in the end time and give them everything they need and show the world through them of what it's like to truly obey God and how he can bless. We've gone to places like Isaiah 35 and the desert blooming as a rose. We've gone to Isaiah 51 where it talks about how I'll give you the garden of God, even Eden. And he's offering the tree of life to his people here at the end time. If they're going to go into eternal life, their best chance of doing that is going into the wilderness and taking hold of the tree of life in the original Eden. Now, is that spectacular or what? I find that very exciting. And he's using that type of language at the beginning and the end of this message to Ephesus. Interestingly, there is another group that I think probably much of which will be with us out here someday. And the leader of that group has said for years, going back, oh, I don't know, at least 10, 12 years, made some comments that he thought if his group fit any of these, it fit Smyrna better than any of the others. Ephesus Smyrna is the second. I would not be at all surprised to see that particular group of which I speak out here next. There's one that came. There's two that might come. Then you have five more. Kind of interesting. All right, then, let's pursue this, what if Ephesus is speaking of us. Let's go into that a bit. Now, part of what triggered some of these thoughts was the scriptures that we went back, went through back in the Passover service itself. And I'm referring to that section from John 14, through 17, and I want to hit some highlights in here that, uh, that hit me as we went through it that very night. Now, the main criticism, I guess the only one really there of, of Ephesus, is that they had lost their first love, their first energy, their first excitement, their first uh, feelings and energy. What does he say here? to those who would begin the Ephesian era of the church, those twelve apostles. Let's pick it up in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, first love, then, is obedience and commandment keeping. Because this is the love of God that you keep the commandments. It's not just a feeling or an emotion 
that love is. Love is the overall understanding of God and of each other. And it creates a desire to do the things that would please the one that we love. And God wants us to live by His commandments because that's what makes for a peaceful society. It's what will make a peaceful universe. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter. He was one comforter while He was there, but they needed someone for when He was gone. That He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees it not, neither knows it, but you know it, for it dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you, yet a little while, and the world sees me no, no, no more, but you see me, because I live you shall live also. Verse 21, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. You can say you love Christ all day long. There are lots of religions that say we love the Lord, we love Jesus, but they don't keep His commandments. And John made it very clear back in his first book. If you say you love Him and don't keep His commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you what it boils down to. <coughs> so understand that keeping God's law, His commandments, is what defines love. And if we've lost His first love, if we're Ephesus, that means that we're not keeping His commandments as actively as we ought to be in the Spirit and perhaps even in the letter at times. He's the one that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. If you want to guarantee that God, the Father, and Christ love you and show loving kindness toward you, then you do what? You keep all his laws. You're very, very careful. What carefulness we read the other day it wrought in you. Uh, 14, verse 34. There is no such thing. What did I write down? Well, let's go on to 15.10 then. <clears throat> if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. You're going to stay in his love and good feeling for you if you keep his commandments. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and... I abide in His love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. He wants us to be full of joy. That's one of the fruits of His Spirit. So what He is telling these fellows is here's how to be joyful. If you keep the commandments and you abide in my love, you're going to be happy and fulfilled and joyful. If you don't, things are going to get bad. Now, we began to take things for granted in worldwide, and we're lackadaisical on a lot of things, and weren't keeping His commandments in the Spirit in the way that we should have been. And our joy was taken away, wasn't it? We were scattered wildly. 
Well, he meant what he said here. And the fruits of what we did became apparent. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. When we argue and fight and bicker among ourselves, which at times we do, we're not laying our lives down, ourselves down for each other. We're upholding ourselves and maintaining our right and who we are and what we are and our pride and our vanity and ego and letting the other person suffer or accusing them. And they're the one that's the problem, not me. We lay down our lives for our friends. And that means our daily lives. That doesn't mean necessarily being martyred. That means that we are willing to give of ourselves for each other, day in and day out. Self-sacrifice. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. All right, let's go to 16, verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. Now this is God's position. This is his mindset, is to love us. 17. Uh, Let's see, I want about verse 23, I think it is. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God expects us to be joined together in one body, all members fitting together closely. And that's something we need to be working toward every day. is not just going about our business. Now, we have our business to do, and we must go about it. There's no doubt of that. But at the same time in all that, we need to be looking out for one another, helping and strengthening, not criticizing one another, but helping one another, so that we might be one part. Now, if I'm left-handed which I am, and I start to do something, and my left hand is inadequate, you know how quick my right hand will hop over there to help? It's just automatic, isn't it? I reach out and I can't pick it up, so my other hand comes in immediately to help. Both of them together, maybe I can accomplish the task, whatever it might be. Now that's how ready, how eager, how quick... We need to become to help the rest of the body. If you stumble, doesn't your other foot move forward very quickly to catch the body lest it fall because one leg didn't do what it should? Or if your right knee is bothering you, don't your hips and your other leg and your back And even your arms move to help that crippled part that doesn't work too well right now? And don't your hands very quickly put a brace on it 
or if your neck's weird, you'll put a brace on it to hold it in place, won't you? Because you want your neck to feel good. You'll put a hot pad on your back. You'll do all kinds of things to make sure that your brain and your hands will do everything they can to make sure whatever part of you is hurting is made whole and well and doesn't hurt anymore. That's the way God wants us as a group here to be. Now I know you didn't go like American Idol to all these different cities and pick out the ones you wanted to be here. Okay? Didn't get to do it that way. God chose whom He would stir to come here. And this is what we got. I'm what you got. Sorry. That's what God did. Now we got to make the best we can of a bad situation, brethren. <laughs> you know? We got to make this work. As Popeye used to say, I am what I am. And it wasn't much without spinach. And we are what we are. And we need to do the best we can to become what God says here. And if He does, there's one place here, maybe I missed it, I meant to, to bring it in, how the world will know, that all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Now we've seen many places in the Bible where it talks about how you are my witnesses there in Isaiah 41, 2, and 3 and different places like that. And how we are to be an end-time example for the rest of the world to look at and say, those are the people of God. Hate them or not, they're God's people. At some point, they're going to recognize that. So we may not have been much, Coxey's army put together, or Motley Crue, or whatever modern, more modern example you might use. I guess Motley Crue's probably been gone for a long time as a singing group. They were lousy anyway, but... We're not such a much, let's put it that way. But it's what we can become that is exciting. These guys weren't much either, were they? Now, he gave them all this instruction and all this lovey-dovey stuff here, didn't he, that night? And then they, he got taken, and they all ran from him. They were the ones that were to start the Ephesian era of the church and be strong and be powerful and be an example to the rest of the Roman and Jewish world around them that God is God. And the first thing they did was run for their lives. Now once they received the Holy Spirit there in Acts 2, they retrenched and became strong. So it is not by your power or mine that we are going to become one together here. It is going to be by the power of the Spirit of God. That's what's going to do it. And it will. Because I do not want to waste my time here. And I don't want to waste your time here. And you don't want to waste your time here. 
Now we're here, so let's not waste our time. Let's redeem the time and use it to do what Christ said had to be done. Now these guys weren't there to begin with. It's a point I want to make. But they were melded together by the strength and the power of the Spirit of God. And they became a very powerful force. And that world in that day did hate them and did kill them. But they died in the faith. Strong and powerful. And they're going to be in the kingdom of God. And each one of them will rule one of the tribes of Israel. So those spineless, lily-livered cowards became strong and powerful in God. And if they did, so can we. Through prayer, through sacrifice, through study of this Word, through washing our minds constantly with the Word of God, and making it the main force and focus in our lives rather than the things of this world, some of the things of this world might not necessarily be Wrong, per se. But do they help you toward your eternal goals and purposes? Where is our time spent? This, God says, will wash your mind and make you more like God. So that's where the focus ought to be. Not just, well, I guess I ought to get in some Bible study. Because that's the thing to do. No. You've got to lift your vision above that. To, I need to be more like God, and the only way I can be more like Him and think like Him is to read this book and to sing those psalms that the sermonette was about. Powerful psalms. Now, we may be called on to build a physical temple. I would say the chances of this, of that, are, in my view at this point, 85-90% that that's the case. I don't know it for sure. But one thing I do know, and I know for absolute certain, and that is that we're called on to build a spiritual temple. No doubt in my mind. Now, if there's some delay or some doubt about a physical temple, then shouldn't we be spending a great deal of time and energy in building the spiritual, which is more important anyway? Now, if things don't work out as quickly toward some of the things we've been exploring as possibilities... I don't think it's time to be discouraged about that. I think it's time to say, hey, at least we got time to work on this spiritual temple and get it ready so that when the time comes to build a physical, we'll be more prepared to do it. Use the time. Not to sit and be frustrated because 
what we think might ought to happen doesn't happen as quickly as we think it might ought to. But to use the time to become what we ought to be. Now, I think it would... Maybe I won't continue where I was going right now. Well, yeah, I have time. Let's go through a little bit. You thought you were going to get to go home and take your nap. You'll have to wait a little longer. Another 30 minutes, you can stand it. If that. I want to begin to examine some scriptures in here about Ephesus, since that is on the table today. Let's go to the book of Acts, because there are quite a few references made to the Ephesian church in the New Testament. Acts 18, and I want to pick this up in about, oh, where, verse 24, I think. Was that where it was? Oh, no, one. Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Oh, wait a minute. Where does it hit Ephesus? Did I write that down wrong? Uh, verse 19. He came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he went into Ephesus, began to reason with the Jews in the synagogue, and when they desired him to tarry longer time with him, he consented not. But told them goodbye, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. There's not a great deal in that one, uh, but he preached Christ to the Jews there, part of his commission. Let's go to chapter 19. Uh, it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Now, let's say we were Ephesus and Paul came and found certain disciples. I'm in a kind of a what-if mode on this. I don't know that we're Ephesus, but I think I have to consider what if we are and what instruction then is given to them. He said to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Well, that's a good question. Do you have the Spirit of God? And they said to him, We've not so much as even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So these were people who were not totally astute in terms of God's will and ways and purpose and His plan and all the doctrines. He said to them, What then were you baptized into? And they said, To John's baptism. John just preached a baptism of repentance. He didn't give the whole gospel. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Emmanuel. So he told them, Repent of your sins and wait till Christ comes, was John's basic message. 
When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Emmanuel. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Much as had happened in Acts 2. This was a new area, an area that had not been worked much, and God manifested his power very obviously there. They began to speak in various languages. There was a mixture of people there. And they prophesied, or preached, inspired preaching, teaching. And all the men were about twelve. So it wasn't a big group. If you counted women, that would have been twelve and a few kids, so they might have had thirty or more there. Forty. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when different ones were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So I'm not going to try to convert the world at this point. So there was a lot of confusion and frustration and people didn't want to listen, so he separated out the true disciples and spoke to them. It does say in the end time that Zerubbabel will be given the staff, the rod, the plumb line, and a separation will have to be made between those who will listen and won't argue and those who are true disciples. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the eternal Emmanuel, both Jews and Greeks. And God worked special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought to the sick handkerchiefs or aprons or cloths, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So God worked very mightily there. Those were new people. They had just learned, and he spent two years there teaching them. Let's go on down. Uh, Jews and Greeks at Ephesus in verse 17. Uh, verse 18, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. They were willing to just open up and show what their faults, their problems were, their weaknesses, their strengths perhaps. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Now there is a book burning. Curious arts that may have had much to do with the occult, with different types of idols, with different types of books, with things that were ungodly. <clears throat> now, have we in a little different manner done the same here? saying a lot of our books, a lot of our TV shows, a lot of our music, a lot of the things that we take part in that are not of God and really are of the occult ultimately and of Satan because they're part of this present evil culture need to be gotten rid of. Well, the zeal of these people was there. And they were willing to bring together 
quite a treasury of stuff. 50,000 pieces of silver is a lot of Gita's. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So throw away the stuff that hasn't to have, doesn't have to do with God that might have dubious origins and purposes and center on God. This was written to Ephesus. All right, let's go on down to, see that was 19, 20, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So he sent to Ephesus and called together all the elders of the church. Now the church there had only started with about 12 men. But over a period of two years of his teaching and so on, it had grown abundantly and was mighty and prevailed. So it got bigger. This little group that is here, I believe, in the future is going to grow and get much bigger and it will prevail. So there's a similarity. I'm speaking of those things which are not as if they already were, because that's what the Scripture says. If we're doing what we should be doing, this will happen. Anyway, and when they were come to him, he said to them, You know... From the first day that I came to Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Eternal with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. So he said, there's been a great deal of pressure here. Uh, I've had enemies from the Jews, and yet you know that I've stayed here. I've tried to be of humble mind, and cried many tears, and, and had temptations along the way. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. I think we have tried to do that here. Maybe we've not done it as well as Paul did. But we try not to hold anything back. I try to tell you everything I can find and discern and perceive and learn from God and God's Word. We have no sacred cows, do we? If we find we're doing something wrong, according to Scripture, we change it, don't we? We're not going to be steeped in the traditions of Herbert Armstrong or worldwide. We're here to learn the traditions of God out of this book. So whatever it says is what we're going to go by. We'll hold nothing back. Testifying both the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Emmanuel the Christ. Now, we haven't been involved in that directly yet, but the time may come when that is the case. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, but having some doubts and suspicions, I think, of trouble to come. Say that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. That's something he had to learn to live with and abide, was bonds and affliction and difficulty, persecution and trouble. If we move forward in God, we're going to receive more and more of that, I'll guarantee you. But none of these things move me, 
Neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. We just read that in John, what he had said to the disciples. How their joy might be full in him if they would go ahead and finish and do what he said. Follow through and keep his commandments. We may be mournful at times. We may be frustrated and discouraged at times. But it will all go away when the joy of His salvation is upon us and His blessing which is to come. Now behold, I know that you all, you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. He knew... He, didn't, he said, I don't know what will befall me in Jerusalem. I don't know what all is going to happen. But he did know that the time of his death was near and that he would only last so long and he would be killed. The end time church is going to have its leadership killed in like fashion. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I've told you everything I know, he said. Not held anything back. I wanted you to get the full story. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, he's talking to the elders here. Kind of a ministerial meeting before he leaves. He's made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, does a spiritual wolf know that he's a spiritual wolf? In most cases, I doubt it. There were wolves that came into Worldwide to destroy the flock, and I don't think they thought they were wolves. I think they thought they were ram lambs. They could not ascertain honestly or define what they were. Do you think the Tagachas and those men who followed them thought they were leading the church in the right direction? Did they come into the church and say, I'm the latest wolf to come in the congregation. I'd like you all to listen up because I'm going to lead you astray. In fact, I'm going to bite your butt. No, didn't come down that way at all. Wolves will come in sheep's clothing, appearing to be sheep, but they're not. You have to be very, very careful because it's often very, very subtle. And you can be led astray very easily. Be careful what you listen to. Also of your own selves, you elders, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. You notice usually when someone comes around and they want to make an impact in some form or fashion, maybe you've noticed this over the decades, they usually want you to follow their line of thinking, their line of reasoning, because they are going to have a new and better product. They're going to have a better message than that which you have been hearing. And it's going to be somewhat different. Because they want, whether they'll admit it or not, to be a teacher. 
Now, a lot of them will proclaim very loud, well, I don't want to be a teacher and I don't want to be a minister. But their very approach belies that. They do want to be an influence. They do want you to think their way. They do want to lead you over to their line of thinking. And they're taking the responsibility of teaching, whether they will officially admit it or not. And that is a very, very subtle danger that you had better watch carefully for. If he wasn't there to vigilantly look after it, this would happen. I've seen it happen right here, several times, with several different people who had their own agenda, their own way of looking at things. And given time, if we did not accept their viewpoint, they left. Or if I put enough heat on them, in some cases, they left. Because they had their own ideas that they were not about to consider our ideas. So by and large, they were here to get a following after themselves. And eventually, they leave. I prefer that rather than having to oil up my boots and give them the boot. But at the same time, it depends on how much damage they're doing to you. And if they're damaging you, understand, I have to do something about it at some point. I believe in letting people have space to repent, space, opportunity to grow, to examine things, to see if we're right. Now, ultimately, if they disagree, they can honorably leave. There's no problem with that. And I have no problem with those who have left honorably. I might still wish them well. But when they go around behind the scenes and try to spread their views and their ideas and chew and bite on the sheep, that is dishonorable. It should not be permitted. Now, I believed the things I believed when I left Church of the Great God, primarily the camp calendar. I really believed I had to make a change. But I did not, from the moment of leaving there, ever call any of those people and try to convince them that I was right and that the organization I was leaving was wrong. Never did do it. Because I felt it would be dishonorable and sheep-stealing to try to do that and try to influence them to leave. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm trying to tell you that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do it. I've done things the wrong way plenty of times in my life. But I'm trying to do things the right way. 
So if someone disagrees, they need to quietly disagree, prove one way or another whether they're right and we're wrong or we're right and they're wrong. And if they disagree, then quietly leave. Don't bite and chew on others. And you all need to understand that. So if there comes in any among us who want to promote different ideas than what are being taught, they're not coming to me and sitting down and going through all the scriptures to prove it one way or the other, but they're going around talking to other people about their ideas. They are dishonorable. They are ungodly. And that's why you should not listen to that, because it is not the correct way to resolve and solve problems. It creates disunity and disharmony. And he warned the elders at Ephesus of that. Don't let that happen. Therefore, watch, verse 31. And remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Because he knew some would be led astray. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are set aside. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that were with me. Now, he had power and authority to collect tithes and offerings, and sometimes he did, but he hadn't in some cases with new churches, lest they think he was just there for the money. So... He worked with them and for them and built tents and did other things rather than charge them. Now, we believe in tithing and we do tithe and we do give offerings and you do. But at the same time, we've tried to change the climate somewhat <coughs> so that money is not the key ingredient here. But that's between you and God that you... We don't try to extract more from you. I, I didn't spend, I don't think, any time during these seven days trying to get you to get over there and put a bunch more money in that box. We just don't operate that way. We're minimizing money as much as possible. We're trying to change the culture. The church tries to pay out of your tithes and offerings for a lot of the meals at the feasts, for a lot of the things that we do. We're trying to turn it around and make it different than it was in Worldwide where it seemed like they were always trying to get in your pocket. Don't want to be that way. So we may not have done it exactly the way Paul did, although I'm willing to go out and work for my own living, but I asked that right there at the first Feast of Tabernacle. Some of you were there. I said, do you want me to work at the church and live from the ties of the church? Or would you prefer I go out and make my own living, which I had been doing? That was in a meeting we had out there in the amphitheater behind the hall there in, uh, in Tanner. Some of you remember that. And they said, 
We want you to go ahead and work for the church. Spend your time essentially there rather than doing your own thing. That's the way we've done it. Of course, you weren't all new to the truth either like these people were when Paul went there. You were veterans of 20, 30, 40 years. Anyway, he said, I've showed you all things how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Emmanuel, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I've been hearing stories here and there, and some of them are true, I know, that there are a lot of people here who look around and see somebody in need, and they very quietly and anonymously in many cases put money in a box or in an envelope and see that you get it. I've seen many examples of that out of this little group, and I truly appreciate it. I don't even know names. I just know that some people have told me, you know, I went to my box and there was some money there. Don't know where it came from. All I can say is, wow. Maybe we're learning. Maybe we're trying to support and help every way that we can. And that just makes me feel gooey inside that you're willing to do for each other. We may yell and scream a lot, brethren, but know that God does appreciate your works and your love and your patience and your help with one another. So it's not all in for naught. It's important. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on his neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they wouldn't see his face any more. And they went with him to the ship. Well, that was a very tearful goodbye, I'm sure, knowing that the trip he was about to take was going to wind up with him dead. So, there are sacrifices in doing God's work. And I think we'll stop there, and, and I want to pick up uh, next time with the book of Ephesus. Because of all the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, there's only one that a book of the Bible was written to. There is no book to the church at Pergamos or Thyatira or Philadelphia or any of them. There's a book to the church at Ephesus. So since we're considering that first church at the moment, I think it would be good that we go there and uh, consider what God had to say through Paul to the church of the Ephesians.